Hi, I'm Stephen Weber, and you're watching The Claw's Corner because Rich Sear was a sick student. Welcome to the latest episode of The Claw's Corner. Today's guest is the lead vocalist of American rock band Saliva. Formed in 1996, my guest joined the band in 2012 bringing in some fresh blood and putting a new spin on the saliva sound. So please welcome vocalist, songwriter, and producer, Bobby Emru to the Claws Corner. Howdy, howdy. How are you doing? Just want to let you know we lost video on you. Oh, I know, because somebody... There we go. Yeah, right. somebody called me, dude. My, my, uh, we had to hire a, a, an adjuster. Sorry, I know this is off topic. That's him, because our... Uh, they put our roof on. We had a new roof and they screwed it up and it didn't pass inspection. It was like not cool. So we're having to have it redone all over. Well, as they yeah. say, sometimes life gets in the way, but I really do appreciate right. you being on the show and uh, we'll, we'll uh, it's rock and roll. For you. <laughs> exactly. Rock and roll. That's what it's all about. <laughs> I, that's the stuff you deal with. <laughs> oh yeah. It's you never know. ending. Right. Well, let's start off with your latest song and why it means so much to you. Um, Revelation Man um, is a song that um, is about a guy who struggles with um, things in life uh, and, and basically has to. It's 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 painting out the picture of a guy who basically hits rock bottom and uh, to find himself again and. I uh, had to die, die to find a revelation, I had to die to live a revelation. Um, you know, I think there's like some spiritual stuff in that for me too, uh, being that guy that had to do that stuff. So I'm kind of writing about myself and, and in a sense, but also wanting it to uh, connect with other people who have been there and, and gone through the same stuff. Uh, yeah, it's not easy, man, to to get through the things that you're doing. Yeah. Everybody has, they like to do. And it's just, you know, unfortunately for me, uh, you know, I, I liked it too much and, um, I had to, you know, you have to make life choices, man. Do you want to be around uh, a long time or, you know, do you want to keep, you know, digging that deeper hole? And, uh, yeah, I, you know, luckily I, I was able to just give, give it up. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. What do you want? Short-term fun or being it for the long run? So I'm glad that you uh, finally made that decision. And also, I think that's a great thing because not only is it probably great therapy for you to write it down, but also people who maybe think that they're alone and they're the only ones going through it, they hear that and say, I can relate to this. Thank you very much, Bobby. I really do appreciate you writing about that. I felt like you were singing it to me. So you're doing so many good things in that one song, just putting your feelings on the page and letting people know that they're not alone. And also what you went through and I'm so glad that you're on the, uh, the right that's road what, now. That's what music is about. That's yeah. exactly music is supposed to be, you know, the artist lays it out on the line and, and the person that's listening, the listener um, connects or they don't. I mean, it's, I think that's just with any, with any song. Yeah. Not there's millions of songs out there and then, not everybody is going to connect to all of them. So 
No, well, that's what I love because music is the one common denominator with so many people. Somebody, you know, they don't like you because of you like this political person. They don't like you because of this religion. But the one thing people can say, you know what? We, st- we like this band and that's and that's where they find that common ground. I've seen that so many times where people just spew hatred at each other. Then they're like, hey, I love saliva. You do too? All right. And then they start talking and then they go off and enjoy their day. So yeah, music definitely yeah. brings so many people together. And I love that. So with this, I know you released that one song. Are you going to be releasing one song at a time every couple of months? Or are you going to just release one full length album all at once? So we're going, we're actually going to radio, uh, next month in may with uh, another song um called crows and that's that's the one um so yeah we're dropping songs until the record but that we're gonna kind of focus there um at radio and see what happens yeah. well, i heard you mention this and i found this interesting because obviously bands do not make their living from streaming <laughs> they make it from touring selling merchandise but I heard you mention somewhere when I was doing my research on you that you said now it's like a legalized payola scandal where you have to pay this person to get this done. It, do you find that accurate? You've always had to do that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, it, you know, who used to run those record companies back in the, the fifties and sixties was all like mob, mob. I mean, it, you have to pay somebody to make, make shit happen for you. Oh, exactly. You, and and they still do. I mean, yeah, it's like, I mean, it's not a secret. I mean, oh, yeah, no, no. I didn't think it, I think it was a revelation. Right. But I just, right. uh, I um, because yeah, I mean, I I'm sure you know Tommy James and the Shondells. Supposedly they're coming out with a movie on his life, and it's all about that how the mafia owned him, and he said the mafia was so great to him, they treated him very well. But even yeah. I, go, I go back to uh, Alan Freed, who brought so many bands that probably would never, ever see the light of day. And he said, hey, give me a couple of bucks. I mean, that was not legal. But what I'm saying is that that, that payola scandal helped make so many well, bands that probably never would have been found. found. Yeah, you're not you're not directly paying radio stations. Oh, That's no, not, I know that. Yeah. Works. You basically like, you know, even if you watch like the Clive Davis documentary. David Geffen, like all those dudes were successful artists after another. First, it takes having an ear to understand a good song and know and knowing that the artist is is great, you know. And yeah, those those guys found a lot of great artists. And, you know, because there are a lot of great artists, it's just it's discovering what speaks to you. Those artists spoke to them. And it's like, wow, okay, you know, I think that, you know, like Clive Davis loves like Whitney Houston. I mean, who doesn't listen to Whitney, hear Whitney Houston and go, she's fucking awesome. Like there's just something about her voice and you're just very drawn in, you know, to that stuff. And I think like, um, but to break those artists, there's a lot, especially back in the day, like MTV and stuff. It's not just like, Hey, play my artist. Okay, cool. No problem. You know, it's, it's very like, look, I need you to play my artist because I need to break this artist and I need like this amount of spins every week or whatever it may be. And, um, you know, it's it's definitely someone's getting paid. People are getting paid, you know, not yeah. you're not you don't have to wave. You don't have to wave the money around to them in order for them to get paid. There's there's ways they're getting paid. So. Um, and I, I think that. Even like Guns N' Roses, like 
when you when you read the story about appetite for destruction the record was out a year before it ever blew up you know it was out you know geffen was like we're done with this record we're not going to put any more money into the record and then you know their a&r guy you know probably spent whatever last budget they had to get mtv to play the welcome to the jungle like late at night the three nights in a row and boom yep. biggest debut rock record of all time mm-hmm. yeah you know yeah, like no obviously they're getting crazy. paid for a reason they know what they're doing and they know how to get the songs into the right hands and get it out it's, there. it's a machine now it's just a lot more confined like the machine is more um it's like a cycle just everything kind of is real repetitive on how they do it it's like all right we're gonna put a new record out okay cycle let's go hit the festivals and do this and then all right 18 months two months two years later let's put another record out you know it's just it's very consistent you know we haven't put a record out in four years so we don't know what that's like anymore yeah so uh we're we're kind of behind um the game here but we're you know we're excited to put new music out man and and um every artist or, or band is you know when you go and make a record it's like you're putting your life on you're putting your life out there mm-hmm. you know and uh and i think like you know for us we love creating music and you know we want to drop more songs we want to be able to go and 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 just play rock and roll for people man that's we love doing it yeah, well, I'm so glad that things are finally getting back to normal for the most part, where I've gone to concerts, the place is packed, everybody's having a great time, the bands sound great. So I'm glad that things are st- finally starting to uh, get back to normal. I hope it stays like that for a long, long time. <laughs> so last May, Saliva celebrated the 20th anniversary of its major breakthrough album, Every Six Seconds. So I want to talk about the EP, Every 20 Years. Mm-hmm. So you released that and you re-recorded some of the songs that was recorded by the old singer and you released that EP, celebrate the 20th anniversary of that album. Yeah, that was just for for the fans, really. We wanted to do something for the 20th anniversary and it didn't seem like anybody was doing anything for the 20th anniversary. So yeah, you kind of spoke about it. But it's funny because we'd already had like a couple of those songs recorded like we just no one knew about it and we you know during like the pandemic and stuff we recorded a lot of new songs recorded like a lot of covers uh we were just in a creative mode i think a lot of uh artists and bands were you know during pandemic you're home so you're like well let's just make a bunch of music um and that was just part of that like originally we thought that we were going to do a covers record and then we were just going to throw one or two of those songs on there and then it turned into maybe we'll do like an EP of every 20 years. And then the other half of the EP, of, of the record would be like uh, half covers, half uh, remakes. And then for whatever reason, it just didn't really pan out that way. And we we just put out the uh, just an EP of the re-records. And then we added Spoonman, the co- Soundgarden cover. Um, but uh yeah, I mean, it was cool. Yeah. Now, besides Soundgarden, what other covers were you going to do? Were you going to release? Oh, man, we've got a bunch that we've done. Um, I don't really want to, I can't really say what they are. No, no problem at all. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> but uh, 
there's some cool stuff, man. We we did like some really cool throwback. We did like some new wave bands. We did some, we did some, uh, you know, a couple grunge, you know, bands. We did a bunch of different stuff. We mixed it up. I love that. Cool. No, it's a lot of our fact that, that you could take different genres instead of sticking to the same genre and then expose people to music they might not have even known about. So yeah, I love that. And then you put your own spin on it. So besides yeah. the EP, you also have a documentary entitled Every Six Seconds, 20 Years Later. And in that, you mentioned how important producer Bob Marlette was in developing the sound. For the band, yeah, in general. Like, uh, Bob was, it worked on a lot of stuff. Um, and I think he was kind of finding his groove. And, and with him and Saliva, like, the universe kind of connected with the two. And, you know, he... They had a home run, man, together. And I think uh, Bob's just got, has a really good ear for songwriting and for melody. And, um, you know, he's like a classically trained piano player. And um, he, so he knows every single scale and note and, you know, minor, major, whatever it is that you think you're doing, he'll, he'll figure out a way to make it better melodically. And, uh, that's what was great about that record too, is that every six seconds record, there's a lot of like, um, every song has its own like identity. You know, it doesn't all sound the same. Yeah. It's a really good balance of um, heavy stuff and, and melodic vibe, like slower stuff, dark, dark stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, I'd say Bob, you know, helped a lot. And if it wasn't for Bob, songs like Always wouldn't exist, you know, and because that was just a story where I think the record was done, the Back Into Your System record was done and he, um, the label had listened to the record and was like, well, sounds like we're missing one song and they're kind of, you know, talking about it and then I think Bob had the idea to to write a four chord song and that song changed a lot of things for the band well that's why i love uh, maybe some people don't realize how important a good producer is i know there's so many great producers out there i'm going to mention two one obviously is george martin with the beatles watching some of these documentaries i see how important and what how integral he was they always say billy preston was the fifth beetle he really was the fifth beetle and the other one i want to talk about is rick rubin Everything this guy touches is gold from Beastie Boys, Slayer, to Neil Diamond, Johnny Cash, Black Sabbath. The guy definitely knows what he's doing. And I've seen, I've seen interviews with him, too, and just in different documentaries. Oh, yeah, why don't you try this? Do this. Why don't you listen to this? And, yeah, I think most people who aren't involved in music don't realize what a good producer does for the band and how they de- help develop the sound. I think a guy like... So Bob was very, because Bob worked with my band too, like in the early 2000s. And the way our band, like we went in with like a bunch of ideas and he took those ideas and turned them into really, really great songs. Yeah. And we didn't, we had no idea that that would happen. So I got to witness firsthand on how he, how he works and what he can do and what he's capable of. Um, so it was almost like he, he was more of a, a development producer, you know, yeah. developing a new band. 
Um, Rick Rubin had just a good ear for finding naturally talented bands who had the songs already. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people will have different feelings about a guy like Rick Rubin. Like I know bands that I've worked with him that said he didn't do a fucking thing for the record. Uh, like read something about it that came out today. Um, someone saying, I don't even, I can't tell you the one thing he did on our record, but maybe on those earlier projects, like in the eighties and like, you know, nineties and stuff, he was probably a lot more involved. And then it probably got to where he could just pick and choose who he wanted to work with. And, you know, really a producer is supposed to just take, you know, the band's songs. They don't really change their sound. Just like take songs like, yeah, this song's great or this song sucks or let's do this or try that. Just kind of take them to the next level. But I mean, how do you take Red Hot Chili Peppers to the next level when they've already, they're already there? Yeah. So it's a lot of those bands, a lot of those, those seasoned bands work with a guy like him because they know he's not going to come in and change all their shit. You know, it's more of just like a, a name and, and like, okay, the song's good. Sounds good to me. You know, roll with it. Yeah. So I don't really influence. He really puts on these bands like anymore. Okay, like, you my, know, I, had a lot more, um, was a lot more in on the developing side of like Beastie Boys and stuff like early on. Yeah. But those bands kind of had their sound and their own, their thing going. Which you know? is funny because I've seen documentaries on the Beach, Be- or Beastie Boys and they, I guess they had issues with him as well. So I didn't realize that. But what I was thinking about too was more George Martin where I guess there was something, I can't remember what song it was. Let's say it was Let It Be. He, they said, no, you already play piano in this. Try this. Or you already play guitar in this. Try this. So he was a little bit, maybe a little bit more instrumental in their sound over the years. And yeah, John, what, you already tried that. Why don't we do this? I mean, I did notice in some of the documentaries, especially the one that just came out with Peter Jackson with the Let It Be sessions. But then there was another one that I was watching. But yeah, no, it's just, it's, it's good to have somebody that knows what they're doing, but also lets the band be what right. they are. Now, because of Bob, and I know the band was, was a burn season. Yeah. Yeah. And you were originally a drummer. You weren't a singer at the time. No, I mean, I, I was like writing the music and, uh, you know, I was playing drums and guitars and on that record and stuff. So I was kind of doing both. <laughs> yeah. Did, uh, it was me, and really. So it was like me, you know, handling all the music side. And then, you know, the other guy was doing the vocals and stuff. And Bob worked him like to death, like worked him hard, man. <laughs> like, no, I think because, was it because of buy, Bob? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. He had to buy new briefs when he was done with that. <laughs> no, what I was going to ask you, was it because of Bob? That, is he the one that introduced you to Saliva and you became the new singer? No, actually. Um, Bob, though, had just gotten done uh, producing the... Uh, back into your system record and he had just gotten done with Shinedown's first record. So actually I met Bob in Jacksonville through a mutual friend when he was here meeting with Shinedown. He was here meeting with them and uh, it was at Jack's Beach. And I remember he had left the meeting with them and then had the meeting with me and we just had lunch and, and talked for two hours and he just had a great approach about uh, songwriting and music and he, he said I heard some of the songs you guys have and honestly they're just they could be much better and um, we just felt like we were young man I was only 18 at the time so uh, 
it was like, we knew we needed somebody like that, like some guidance, you know, cause we were young and, and, you know, a lot of, you know, musicians or whatever, when they're still young, they think they know it all, but you know, it's good to have a guy like that just come in and, and help you because I learned a lot from him that I still use today when I work with other artists and things like that. So, um, but yeah, it's super important, man. And he did a lot of big records for a lot of big bands and, uh, you know, he's, I still talk to him. He's, Bob's doing great. Oh, good. He's still out in, uh, California. So, so how did you go from drummer to frontman with saliva then? Oh, so, um, there was a guy and I live in Jacksonville, Florida. So there's a lot of guys from here, a lot of bands that have come out of Jackson, uh, a lot of, you know, uh, crew guys like, so there's a lighting guy that worked with saliva years ago. And he also did like Limp Biscuit, a bunch of bands and he's out with Godsmack. He was with Godsmack for years and he's back out with them now, Jeff Riles. And, um, he just called me one day and said, Hey, uh, saliva's looking, um, for a singer. Uh, I gave them some of your songs cause I'd had a bunch of songs recorded and um, he and I talked about like being in a band, like he'd play drums and I would, you know, sing in this band or whatever. So I think he, he, he thought of me um, when he heard about that and was like, Hey, you guys need to check this guy out and sent them some songs. And it just so happened. Somebody else had sent them a couple of my songs too, I think. So they were like, Oh wow, let's check this guy out. They um, listened to the songs and, and that was pretty much it. Like they didn't audition anybody. Um, I think they, you know, the drummer Paul sent me a text and said, "Hey, uh, this is Paul from Saliva, uh, wondering if you'd if you'd like to work with us." That was like what the text pretty much said. Um, I think they were looking for somebody that wasn't just a singer, but somebody that like understood songs and and production and producing and was able to kind of like come in and uh, just write a bunch of shit together, you know, and and. Um, so I think that's how that, that panned out. So Jeff pretty much linked us up. They flew to Jacksonville, uh, Dave, Paul and Wayne. And, uh, we wrote three songs in three days, recorded them. And, um, then I was, that was like December, 2011. And then I did my first tour, February, 2012. Wow. For 10 years, man. Yeah, I was going to say, well, congratulations. Happy anniversary. And, um, I'm so happy that everything, it seems like it just gelled immediately for you. And that's always a great feeling because not oh, only you have to be talented, but you also have to get along with the people that you're going to be on <laughs> tour with, living with, doing everything with. So, yeah, that also makes it much easier, much better. Yeah, you, well, you, obviously it's not all roses, man. You have to go. Yeah things and you figure out what works and doesn't work and you know four guys living together you know you just kind of learn about each other and you um you know you it's a bit it's a business man now it's just not there's no egos there's none of that involved it's let's just have fun with it and 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 be happy playing music i think that's yeah. what it was i mean no disrespect to like the old the old band you know, in the previous 10 years, but dude, I heard some stories 
that would make Motley Cruz the dirt look like I'm, and I'm being dead serious, man. If some people heard some of these stories that I've heard, they're frightening the shit that I've heard. So, you know, and, and I keep that in the vault, but I'm just saying like you, you realize why bands go through changes and they go through things and they they're like, Hmm, let's not do that again. You know? And it's, it's all about, I think four guys that are living together. You got to be happy, man. You have to. And if you're not, why are you, why are you doing it? It's miserable. Exactly. You know? Not fun. You know, you, a lot of these people that, you know, they think it's all like 18 years old all over again. Let's go be rock stars. And, um, you know, meanwhile, you're, you got managers and, Agents and all these people, they're just like leeching money off of you the whole time. And mm-hmm. not saying everything is like yeah, that, yeah. but I mean, when you're not, when you turn a blind eye and you're just in the excess of everything going on, I mean, you forget about all that shit going on behind the scenes. So with this, we just want to take control of what we're doing and, and be able to, uh, you know, make, you know, have fun with it, but also earn income, you know? That's very important. Well, it's funny you mentioned Motley Crue because I'm not sure if it's like that now, but I know when they reformed one of the times, they all had separate tour buses because they hated each other so much. And one of the band members, I think it was Tommy Lee, said, I'm just in it for the money. I can really care less. I don't like any of these guys. Maybe it's changed now. Maybe, But I know that when they reformed one time, they just said, we don't care about each other. And they all had separate tour buses. So it's funny. And um, I, I know I don't even want to get into the past. So I want to talk about the present with you, but I know he left for a Christian band, uh, Josie Scott. So I think it's funny, like you're mentioning like stories of Motley Crue type stories that he went for a Christian band. Well, no, I'm, I wasn't directing the stuff oh. to him as what I'm saying, as far as stories. I just mean in general, the band yeah. overall okay. was going shit that made Motley Crue's the dirt look like yeah. I wouldn't say just all him it's just yeah. uh you know they'll, they'll tell a story and i'm I, here i am listening to it and i'm like you gotta be fucking kidding me like how are you alive you know like stuff like that but, <laughs> yeah okay I, I see what you're saying now yeah but, but yeah you know but motley crew thing the kind of money they're making of course you know you're gonna go and for you know go in 10 buses Decide that, you know, today I'll be in this one and tomorrow I'll be in the blue one, like whatever, you know, because they have, there's so much money there for, for them to do that. But not every band, let me tell you what, if they had to be forced into one bus, let's see how long that would last. There's no amount of money that would be worth it. And I think that not every band has that luxury to be able to tour that way or every band would, whether they liked each other or not. Yeah. You know, every band could afford their own bus, each person. Dude, that's that's how they would tour. But <laughs> we can't we don't uh we don't operate that way. So we have to we have to find ways to uh to get along and, and to just keep it keep everything cordial. And it is, it's it's very, very cool. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And speaking of getting along, were you immediately accepted by the fans? when he left and you came in as a new singer? God, no, man. No one ever is. You have to go and earn it, you know, every night. I I still do it. I still feel like I'm earning it every night and trying to just give people a show, give people a, 
uh, you know, especially the fans. Because a lot of people don't know that there's been a change at singers. You know, people have their lives. They they live their lives. They work. You know, day jobs. They they're not work. What's what's saliva up to the past ten years? You know, they don't know. They just know saliva's coming to town. They're gonna go check it out. So I've heard it all from man, Josie, me and you were partying 15 years ago and kissing Aerosmith. And I was like, that's not me, man. That wasn't me. <laughs> no. Man, me and you, man. You know, I'm like, all right, dude. I was there. I, I started just going along with it because I, at this point, I have to like, I want to save my voice and not, you know, I don't want to explain for six hours the story to this guy. So um, a lot of times. Yeah, man. Yeah, dude. That was cool. I remember, dude. Yeah, we were in the back of the, the Corvette, dude, hanging out. It was cool. <laughs> Great time. So, yeah, I love it. Oh, you know that what is, I mean? That is funny. <laughs> I, but I, I, I hear I hear stories like that. And I think maybe it's because when they're in the crowd, stage is far away. They, they don't, they can't really, you know, you just know the songs. Yeah. And, and you love, you like the music. So, but yeah, I've been compared uh, a lot, but I just go out and, and just constantly, you know, prove myself and um, just give give people a show, man. That's what it's all about. Definitely. There's only, I mean, I'm sure there's more. There's two bands I could think of right off the bat that got rid of their singer or something happened to the other singer and then they were just as successful and maybe even more were ACDC and Van Halen with Brian Johnson and Sammy Hagar. They just continued and became even better afterwards. I mean, I love the David Lee Roth years, and I also love the Bon Scott years, but I also like the Sam Hagar years and the Brian Johnson years. So I, I love the fact that you continued. And what's funny is some people don't even realize that there's a new singer, but for the ones that do, how has the sound evolved and changed when you joined the band? Um, I, th I do think it's different. Uh you know, vibe. I mean, musically, there's a lot of saliva feels for sure. Just with, you know, Wayne and, and Paul's influence on that. Um, but I also feel like vocally, I'm, I'm a different singer. I'm a different kind of singer. And, um, you know, but I feel like the old songs, I do the old songs justice, you know, for the fan. Uh, you know, and that's what I, that's what I try to do. I, I hate going and see a band with with like a new singer or whatever and it's like this dude's like totally just i don't know what he's doing he's like singing it all different and you know weird and, and and i don't know but and as a fan you know you you don't want to go and see that you want to at least see it like someone you know putting the effort in to uh you know to to killing those songs and make, making the songs that you, the fans love um good but you know i have my own way and my own stamp on them to where it's it's never going to be the exact same you yeah. know and trying to do that uh just doing doing what i do man and uh but the fans have, have been very accepting and but you know i have to go out and win them win them over and and i've had to do that and uh i don't mind doing it it's fun it's challenging but it's great yeah, I, I, I would actually like that as being the person I would like to go out there and have to prove myself every time and win the audience over because, as you said, it's more it's a challenge and it makes you want to be even better instead of I'm so glad you mentioned that because I've seen these bands. I love them live or I love what I hear that I go see them live and 
you said they completely changed it around. It's more like they're phoning in. They, they sometimes they seem bored on stage. I'm like, why did I pay money? I could have stayed home and listened to the record. So I love the fact that I have the same mentality as you. It's like, no, I want to see, hear it the way it is, but also make it a little bit different, make it exciting, get put on a good live show, make it fun. Well, I think, I think when people go to a concert, they want to be entertained. Yeah. And, you know, as long as you are up there not standing like a statue and you're killing it and you're engaging with the audience, they forget about all that other shit about it being identical or whatever. They don't, you know, they don't really, they just want to be entertained. They want to know that you, you have to, if you don't look like you're having a good time, then why are you there? You know what I mean? That's yeah. the thing. You have to engage with them and, and give them what they paid for. So exactly. Cause I've, I even said this to other musicians that I've interviewed, I'd rather see a band have fun on stage and mess up instead of being so worried about, I need to sound exactly like the album. It's like, no, if I want to do that, I can stay home and listen to it at home. But I want to see a fun show. I want to see the band having fun. And when you're having fun, it's going to translate into the audience. And then they're yeah. going to have fun because they see you guys having fun. So yeah, I, I definitely yeah. enjoy bands it's, that are in making rock and a, roll. Making Rock and roll is not meant to be perfect, man. Exactly. There's it's have imperfections. You know, it's like I'll, I'll see bands live these days and they're just running massive tracks, man. And the singers lip singing and rock and roll band. I'm like, what is this? You know, this is, this is, this is sad. You know <laughs> what I mean? What it's come to. Yeah. You know, and what's cool is you'll see bands that are like, you know, from our day, from our era, like the, early 2000s, you go see Rob Zombie and see Godsmack and see these bands and they're not running tracks, man. They're playing live and they're yeah. staying true to it. You know, or if they're running some backing stuff, that's cool, but they're singing. I mean, the dude is up there full blown. He's singing, you know, there's no, there's no tracks involved, but yeah. I, I hate to go see a band or hear, or, you know, see a band, whatever it is. And the dude's just lip singing on stage. It's like, wow, that's, I know that's, that's bad, man. Especially when it's well, like <laughs> well, just like I heard, I, mean, I don't know how true this is, but I was listening to an interview with Sammy Hagar, and he was saying that when Wolfie took over from Michael Anthony, uh, Wolfie and the Halen, they said you could hear him, he could hear Michael Anthony's vocals playing through the sound system. He goes, This is just sad. He goes, I feel so bad for him. He goes, He's thrown into a situation he shouldn't have been thrown in, but yeah, they're playing tracks, it's not. and it didn't really last that long anyway with Van Halen for after Michael Anthony left and Daily Roth, but whatever. It's just, uh, yeah, I, I'm like you. I'd rather have it sound maybe a little bit more raw, but fun and live and has that energy. That's really to me when you see a live show, I want to see that energy and feel it. See, I thought that Wolf was singing though. I didn't, I couldn't I be wrong on that. That's the interview I heard with Sam. Was, was it removed Michael Anthony's vocals and then started singing or? Because I, I I never knew that they were running running stuff. Um, that, that unless you know, I know there was a lot of bad blood for, right. Uh, right up until Eddie died, and they made up. Uh, from what this was an older interview when he left the band, he said that's what he was telling somebody. So I don't know how true it is because I never saw them live with Wolfie, but he was saying they were right. running tracks. And because uh, some Michael of those the high voice, I know some of those old school bands would like have a guy on the side of the stage who would be singing backups and stuff. Yeah. Uh, sometimes that was, you know, that happened a lot, but I mean, that's better than 
running computer tracks. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. So, and I've seen bands do that. Yeah. Guys stand on the stage and doing stuff. I'm like, I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. Because it just, it adds to the sound. I mean, it just kind of helps whatever's on the record. You know, not everybody's, you know, when you go and you make those records as producers, their job is to make the best record possible for the record company to make a shit ton of money off of it. You know, that's what their labels paying them to do. I guarantee you, you know, the producers talking with the band and doing everything, handling that, but there's an A&R guy in the producer's ear saying, come on, man, I need the next Led Zeppelin record. Come on, man. You know what I mean? Yes. And, and that, that's just the way it happens. So the producer's always in the tough spot. Yeah. You know? Well, it's funny. But, Did you ever hear of King Diamond? He's a oh, yeah. musician. Yeah, yeah. I love King Diamond. I've seen him probably 15 times with Merciful Fate and his solo album, but solo group. But there was one time he lost his voice. So he brought his wife out on stage so she could do the high notes because he couldn't reach the high notes. But he was so great. He goes, you know, what? if everybody wants their money back, I will give your money back. But if you want to stay here and see a kick ass show, stick around. So he brought his wife out on stage and she did some of the higher notes for him because, you know, he can go from that low growl to the air piercing screams. Yeah. And that's a people respect that because he was honest about it. And he yeah. actually he was upfront about it. He didn't just hide you know, tra tracks or whatever in the background. Yeah, not at and body wanted their money back because you know what? Like, that's something that they'll always remember that happened one time. And it's like, I was at that show that when his wife came up and like, that's cool stuff, man. That's, that's great. That's life. It's all stepping stones to what, you know, this universe that we live in. And like, that's just another, you know, another, another mark, you know, yeah. as remember, and it's cool. I, I like reading stories um when you know something will flash on facebook or whatever and it'll be like uh a concert from a certain time in the 80s or whatever and you look at all the comments all the people are like i was there man like monsters of rock and stuff all these old school concerts and and they they'll like literally it's always the same they always say dude metallica uh, I felt so bad for Dokken, you know, having to follow Metallica, the whole crowd yelling, die the whole time, you know, <laughs> Dokken would come on and, you know, play, you know, burning like a flame or something. And I love Dokken. So this is yeah. back to Dokken, but I can't, I can't imagine following uh, Metallica when they're, you know, about to put out Injustice for All at that time. Oh, yeah. That'd be very hard. Well, it's funny. I live in Connecticut, and I'm not sure if you ever played in this area. It used to be, a, or still is, an amusement park. They don't have shows there anymore. It's called Lake Compounds. They had a lot of shows. Actually, it's known as the place where Millie Vanilli found out they were lip syncing. It was there in Bristol, Connecticut. Yeah. But the reason I bring that up was there was one time Allison Chains opened up for Van Halen. They got booed off stage. And then yeah. a year later, they were massive, but it was funny. Just that one time they were yeah. starting to make it. People really weren't sure who they were. People were booing. And then the next year, Oh, you're the best pin I ever saw. Well, that's the power of MTV and radio and stuff too, because the movement was shifting then, you know, like Alice in Chains was, that was out before Nevermind, I would say, you know, and even though Nirvana kind of broke the barrier for a lot of the, the, uh, the grunge bands, but like usually back in the eighties, nineties, people were excited about opening bands because that's how they would discover new music. But not a lot of times, especially with a band like Van Halen, 
who already had probably 10 records at the time. Yeah. And then there's a new band, Alice in Chains, opening up. All the Van Halen fans aren't going to get it. They're just like, yeah, we don't give a shit. Bring out, you know, Eddie Van Halen. Um, I'm sure there were some people there that was like, oh, dude, this band's great. But that, that'd be a tough, that's a tough act to open for in that time. You know, no matter who you are, man. You know, so Alice in Chains is one of my all-time favorite bands. Yeah. And so, you know, but they were a new band at the time. And I think that's, it goes back to Man in the Box, dude. Started blowing up MTV. And uh, what was it that the MTV guy said? Uh, the What was that story? He It was the, the program director had, it was Man in the Box or it was some like, hair band or whatever that had like some big deal and i don't remember what the name of the band was um and he chose man in the box to add he took a shot look at that dude fucking changed their changed their changed everything i love it see like you mentioned with the we were talking earlier about the the record the radio stations they pick a song they have a feeling that this is going to be and so yeah you you need yeah. that and sometimes yeah. it doesn't work all the time but every once in a while you get that that gem that propels them to superstardom and it's it's great right. you need those people yep. yeah because i mean those guys think about the pressure they had on them at the time every single label every single managers you know at that what was he doing is he getting at that time faxes and voicemails and you oh, know yeah. telegrams and it's like you know play my fucking artist you know <laughs> on it i bet and he's probably like dude these these people want to hang me dude you know because you know he's got to tell certain people no you can only pick and choose whichever but i think that was the alice and chain situation was it was them and some other like hair metal band and, yeah, yeah. and he he chose alice and change was that which was the right choice then you have some other combinations, which I think are weird. I remember one time hearing about Striper opening up for Slayer, which I don't know. Oh I, really picture, I know. I don't know why they would do that. Maybe it was like the heaven and hell type of thing, but Slayer fans sometimes can not be as forgiving as other fans. Um, I think you're getting another phone call, Bobby. I'm back. Okay, there you go. Well, I want to talk, get back into you. So now, I know what happened, and I just want to see if, if first, was it a shock to you and the band when uh, Josie Scott went on this podcast or radio station and said, oh, yeah, I'm going to be returning to saliva. At first, was it a shock to you? No, because, um, I mean, I knew that they were talking about doing it. Uh, Wayne had said, you know, hey, I think we may end up doing this, uh, the reunion thing for the 20, 20th anniversary. And, and I was like, dude, absolutely. I think you should. And then just the story kept changing and changing and yeah. things were happening. And then other people started getting involved and it turned into this whole like, uh, you know, it, it just became messy. And um, the, almost dysfunctional, you know, to where like, let's uh pump the brakes and and uh give it some time and see what happens and I, yeah i mean i think it it would be great i think it was was going to be a good thing but it just didn't pan out so um we we're like we're just going to keep doing what we're doing man create some new music put a new record out and you know he's going to join us on stage in uh blue at blue ridge rock fest which is a awesome festival it's a great festival a lot of great bands are playing. Um, and when and is that? When is that going to be happening? It's on September 11th. 
Uh, yeah. And I think it's going to be great, you know, for the fans uh, of Saliva, and, you know, to see him on stage. He hasn't been on stage in over 10 years, man. I think it's cool. And he, and he just announced that he's doing like solo stuff. So he's like uh, working on solo stuff and he launched his site and um, Facebook and dude, all, all respect to him and, and uh, you know, everything he's been doing. And, uh, you know, we have nothing but respect for him, for that guy. And, and I think that, um, you know, it's good that he's getting back out and, and he, ha- he has that hunger and that fire to, to get on stage again. So it's cool. Well, there's a, I'm, as I mentioned before, I'm from Connecticut. There's a Connecticut band named Thieves Warning. They're more of a progressive rock band. Yeah. And they're, after the third album, their original singer left. And he went on to do other things. But they just had their 30th anniversary. And they did exactly the same thing. At first, they brought him back. They did a whole, the album's called Awaken the Guardian. That was one of their biggest albums in the 80s. So they did a whole tour of that album. He came on. But then the new singer, which has been with the band even longer than him, they went on stage, sang some songs together. They had a great time. There was no egos involved. And it was the same thing. It's just like, let's just have some fun. That's, let's celebrate the anniversary. That's the way it should be, man. Because the thing is, is especially with social media today, mm-hmm. like people want to rip everything apart and, and just and just assume, oh, man, they they hate each other. And this this you know, it's just none of that. And and I think it's good to like to to be able to, to do a show and, and do it that way. And everybody's happy and it's all cool. And there's no, there's no egos and it's, you know, he gets to, he gets to get on stage and, and, and play songs for his fans, you know, songs that he created. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, man. There's no ego for me. I can guarantee you that it's, it's all about, uh, you know, I, I do, do this, everything that I've been doing, you know, I like playing on stage. I love entertaining and, um, you know, I'm going to go out there and, and, and kill it you know, and he's going to get up there and he's going to kill it and it's going to be but good. I think a good thing would be is he, you say just, he's going to be releasing a solo album. He could open up. I don't know how it would work, but if he, if he opened up for Slava, you guys did a tour together. I, th- I think that would be great for the fans anyway. I'm not sure, you know, what the situation would be for the band, but just, yeah, ha- have some fun with it. And like I said, you're, you're obviously not going anywhere. You've been in the band for so long. There's no worries about, oh, yeah, we're going to replace you, Bobby. So it's just that, that would probably be a good thing. I think the fans would love it. Just have him open up for you guys. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't know what the future holds for him or what he's doing as far as touring. Um, I know we have a lot of dates. Our, our year is pretty slammed. Um, and uh, they keep adding more and more. I'm like, Jesus Christ, I'm having a baby in July. <laughs> what are we going to do? You know, so. Uh, well, congratulations but, on that. That's thank you for third, third one, man. So uh, I got to, we're, we're excited. She, little Aurora. So um, yeah, just getting ready for that. But we also, we still have a lot of shows coming up and um, new record, new music and, you know, we're, we're, we're excited about all new things, saliva and, you know, we respect and the legacy of the old, old stuff too. I mean, you know, my drummer and guitar player were around for all that, you know, and they, they, uh, you know, I've, it's all, it's all good stuff. Yeah. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, let's talk about rum bum records. Oh man. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> well, whatever you can talk about, I guess, because I know that it was um, created by Louis Picardi. Mm -hmm. And it was a record labeled. He he liked you. And I'll, I'll tell part of the story and you can add in what you want. He started the label and he said, I would love to have saliva on my label. Yeah, he was a fan of the band. Yeah. So Lewis is like a multimillionaire, you know, uh, basically grandson of the guy who created Bacardi liquor, Bacardi rum, Bacardi whatever, like the brand. He is the the grandson. So, you know, those those dudes that have nothing to worry about the rest of their life and their generations to come and, and that all that. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, um, so Lewis, uh, somebody got in touch with us and said, Hey, Lewis Bacardi, uh, he has a label and he wants to meet the band and he was a fan of saliva. So, um, it's funny. His favorite song was a song called hunt you down, which is kind of like, I had never, I was like, I don't even know what song that is. <laughs> it was his favorite song. So um, he uh, he flew in his, his private jet to meet us and we were in like Madison, Wisconsin and we went and met him at uh, Bruce Chris and uh, he had the whole room and everything for us and we uh, we get there and we're talking and we're chatting and we're just trying to feel him out and he's not really saying much, you know, he's just kind of like hearing us talk and then out of nowhere, he says, all right, so uh, how much money do you guys want? And we all four looked at each other. We're like, uh, I don't know, $5? Like, <laughs> like, what do you say to that? And that's the question that he asked. He, he, that was it. He said, uh, how, how much money do you guys want? And he was like, what kind of, what kind of deal? Like, what kind of deal would you guys like? You know? And we didn't know how to answer that. So we just said, maybe we should have our lawyer get with your lawyer. But you don't realize that who you're dealing with is somebody who's, he's, he's thinking from his passionate fan uh, perspective. He, he wasn't thinking business at all because that wasn't really him. He wasn't really this business guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and and we, didn't we didn't really know that because we didn't know the guy. So, um, what we should have said was we want $2 million wired to this bank account, you know, or, or you know, in, in, in two duffel bags, you know, <laughs> uh, but any of that, but you know, all that aside, yeah. uh, Lewis was a, a character for sure. He, he was a very, very cool guy, but he, but he also was a, he was wild, man. He, he did what he wanted when he wanted, you know, it was, you know, one minute it's, Hey, uh, you know, I talked to this producer. I'm going to have this producer like produce your band or produce this, the next Saliva record. And it's like, yeah, who? Bob Rock. For like, really? Yeah, 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 man. I, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wire him the money and everything. You're like, uh, <laughs> hold on a second, man. Like, like, but that's how he was. He he would he would think with like, there was nothing that was out of the question. Yeah, you know. But, you know, he was a big fan of Metallica, too. So he's thinking he's going to get Bob Rock through our record. But he he had never talked to Bob Rock. So he was just ready to 
hire the money, you know? So, so, you know, if Bob ever, if Bob Rock ever sees this, it's, it'd be like, yep, never got the money. Or maybe he did, you know, it's just shit, (laughs) you know? So, but we, we, uh, we did that rise up record. That was a, that was a process, man. Cause there was really no, um, there was no organization. It was just very unorganized. And, um, you know, he just wasn't really, he wasn't a label guy. He was a fan. And I think he thought that we were just going to use our resources and use our connections and make the record fly. Mm-hmm. It was like, all this money's great, but we have to properly distribute this record and like go to radio and do all this stuff. And, you know, um, it just, it didn't really iron out the way we wanted it to, but you know, you live and learn, man, you learn from those things mm-hmm. and you're like, well, let's try to not do that on the next record. Yeah. So the, so you had one album with him and that was it. Then you said, all right, we're, yeah, it sounds yeah, like it, he just didn't. Ha- he had a lot of money, but really no business sense. He thought money could just get him anything and anything he wanted. Like, oh yeah, I have eight million dollars. Here you go. I'll wire it. To- so we did a video. Like we went down and we did a video in Miami. He put us up in like this whatever penthouse uh, hotel W or whatever it was. I mean, it was like not cheap. Yeah, we were there for like two weeks where we rehearsed and we did stuff. And then we made a video. We made a video and, and um, the guy that was directing the video had done a bunch of big, big artists, like the killers and like backstreet boys and shit. So he like paid this dude a buttload of money to come in and do a video that no one's ever seen. It was a video for in it to win it. So we do this video inside. And I remember like when they're like ready for my shots, they're like, all right, Bobby, come on. And I had no idea what I was walking into. And then <laughs> so, so we like, I, I get in the room. And then all of a sudden they're like, all right, action. And then the song kicks in and all of a sudden all this pyro starts going off like near me. <laughs> dude, we're in like a 50 by 50 room, dude. Like, so it freaked me out. Like I knew <laughs> that all this pyro was about to start popping off. So, uh, you know, that just a lot of money spent that, that no one ever saw. Then we did the rise up video. So, we're like, oh, let's switch gears and do the Rise Up video. I think he spent like 50 grand on that video. I think he spent 10 grand just blowing the car up, you know, stuff like that. Like, we're like, all right. I mean, we'll just, <laughs> yeah, we'll just, we just rolled, we rolled with it, man. We rolled with all of it. It was cool. It was, it, it was fun while it lasted. That was a fun couple of years for sure. Yeah. Like you said, you learn from your mistakes. It was an experience you can laugh about now and say, what were we thinking? But, you know, yeah, just it sounds like yeah, you had a little bit of fun there, but just you needed to have somebody more business minded to help you get to where you are now. Well, yeah, because when the record came out, the record was drop about to drop. This was week re- the release of the record. I got a message from him and it said. I'll be on my yacht for the next two months. Don't call. <laughs> Don't text. Fuck everybody. It was something like that. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Okay. I'll be Dude, banging that, some supermodel for the next month, so don't bother me. That's the kind of person he was, man. He just would like whatever, and he could do that because because he could, and you know what I mean. 
it, okay. he was all over the place. But uh, he and I always like we were always cool, man. He he was he was a good dude. So okay. hope he's. I'm glad. Did he ever give up the record business, or does he still do that? Oh, I think that was it. I think he just, oh. I think his advisor or whatever was like, dude, you just literally spent a million dollars and you got nothing to show for it. <laughs> now he's moved on to something else. I'm sure. Oh yeah, like we had friends in other bands that were like, dude, can you get us a deal with them? Can you get us a deal with like, <laughs> other well bands? Can you like, uh, God, like because nobody could believe how much money like he had just like given us. I mean, and where we were at and, and wasn't like we were Metallica or anything. Cause we weren't far from, we we're far from it, you know? And yeah. But to get a deal like that, because he liked, he genuinely liked the band. He was a fan of the band. <laughs> it's funny. A fan of a song. You have no idea what he was talking about. Yeah. That's hilarious. Favorite song. Well, he was, he was saying to me one time, that's how I knew it was his favorite song was because he's like, Hey, you guys are going to play that song live, right? And we're like, uh, I don't, maybe, I don't know. You know, I'm just kind of like feeding his ego a little bit. I'm like, sure, dude. Yeah, well, I'll play it five times if you want, you know, in the set. Only and, if you uh, give me $10 million, I'll play it the whole set. I'll play only that one song. <laughs> yeah, he, he had, yeah, he, he was, uh, yeah, he meant well though, man. But he just, yeah, those guys, they have, they have so much money. They're doing a hundred things, man. They don't, that was just one of the things that he had and did. And it was like a, a project for him, you know, and it just, yeah, it didn't really, didn't really work out. I'm not saying it's his fault or anything. It's just everybody involved. It just didn't line up. I mean, everything has to line up when you put a record out. It's not just one person, um, you know, that's to be the right song. I just didn't think the, the, it was the right single to go to radio with, but it's the one he liked. So that's what we went, we went with. And you so. never know what's going to be popular with the, the fans. That might've been the one that like, maybe you didn't think would be the most popular or the best, but fans did. but yep. You, like you said, you learned. It typically works that way. I mean, it always, yeah. you know, a lot of songs that bands didn't want released actually always was a song that um, I remember hearing the story Wayne and them saying they were literally telling the manager that they were going to quit. They were going to fire everybody. If that song came out, as the single and then, and then look what happened. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> the songs the band ever had, you know, at least with, with top 40 and, and uh, yeah, alternative radio. So uh, then Never they know. were like, every, everybody stays, nobody's fired. You know, it's, then it's thank you. You know what, man, I knew it all along, man. I knew that song was, was be, be the one. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to say anything, but I had a feeling that that was going to be it. <laughs> The checks start suddenly, uh, you know, you see a couple more zeros added to them and then you see, uh, you know, you, you see your, your, your shows, your capacities, uh, growing. Yep. So yep. I want to go back a little bit because we were talking about burn season and I said, you were the drummer. Um, the first record executive to express interest was Fred Durst, Limp Biscuit. Correct. And actually, actually. Fred. Matt Penfield. Okay. Matt Penfield was working at Columbia and he was in Jacksonville because his uh, wife at the time, they had just had a baby and he was spending a lot of time in Jacksonville and he worked in New York. Cause you know, Matt was big MTV uh, 
guy. Um, and he had gotten the job with Columbia as a and And he uh, would go to the radio station and say, hey, what's the local local stuff you have? Any local bands that are worth listening to? And they were like, yeah, this out. And they gave him this CD and it was like a Native Noise CD. And it had like 15 Jacksonville's top local bands on it. And we were on it. My band, the band at the time was called Smackdown. Dude, I was a, I was a high school. I was like going in, I was a senior in high school. And then um, the singer was a senior too. So we, Matt came to our, uh, our rehearsal. We were at Uncle Bob's Storage off 103rd Street in Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, Matt came and watched us rehearse. And was like, man, I really love you guys. And, but, you know, there's this other artist that I, I really like too. I can only sign one. It's between you guys and this artist. Um, and then we, my dad had worked with Sam's dad. That's how I met Sam from Let Biscuit, the bass player. And we've been friends for 22 years, you know, a long time. And uh, so Sam got our, our CD and he heard it. And he actually went and played it for Fred. And at the time, Fred was at, he had, was the head of Flawless Records, which they had just signed Puddle of Mud um, and developed Puddle of Mud. And uh, so he played Fred the CD. And then next thing you know, Danny Wimmer was, was actually the head of A&R there, which Danny Wimmer is, you know, has all the big festivals now, like Rockville and uh, Carolina rebellion and all that stuff. So Danny actually calls and, and leaves a, a voice mail or on my answer machine at home. And it's like, it's Danny Wimmer flawless records. Give us a call. We're really interested in, in having a chat. And, um, so Danny flew and saw us in the rehearsal room and literally just right there on the spot was like, yeah, I like you too, but, not really feeling you two. <laughs> wow. But the other two. Guys. And uh, I think he just knew though that the song, cause he had asked about the song, who was writing the songs and who was doing stuff. So we, about a week or two later, he was like, Hey, I'm going to fly you guys to LA. We're going to, we're going to do this deal. We're going to develop you guys. And so I had just graduated high school and it was August, 2001. And then me and the other guy had flown out to uh, LA and, and we get off the plane. I'd never been to LA, man. You know, I'd never. So we get off the plane and Danny takes us over to Limp Biscuits rehearsal room. And they're the biggest band in the world at the time. Mm-hmm. Like they're massively like big. And uh, we, we get to the rehearsal room and we walk in and dude, there they all are. They're just, they're all there like working on new music. And cause yeah, this, uh, this would after chocolate starfish. So, um, Wes was still in the band before Wes quit, and they uh, they're like rehearsing, and and they're me and you know I was still seventeen at the time, and it was crazy, man. Very very surreal experience, and and uh, and I remember Fred just going, "We really like what you guys are doing, and uh, we're gonna, you know, I'm gonna, you're in good hands with Danny and." 
you know, I'm, I'm busy working on the biscuit stuff, but I'm going to, I'm going to find some time and we're going to get you guys with the right people and producer and make some stuff happen. And then, uh, you know, and I, I was going to like Fred's house and stuff like with Danny and hanging with Fred and, and he had just bought and bought Robert Krieger's house from the doors. And, uh, you know, he was really, really cool, man. He had a lot of good, good things to say. And, uh, you know, and I was like, a kid, I was a kid, man, you know, just like living, living it. And nine 11 happened. And when nine 11 happened, that changed everything. It was like, put pump the brakes. There was, but puddle had just come out. So puddle was actually blowing up at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I know they, you know, they were doing a lot with them, but nine 11 just kind of freaked everybody out. And so me and the guy flew back to Jacksonville when we flew back, because they know ne- they didn't actually give us a deal. They were supposed to give us a deal, but they just kept like, you know, it just, you yeah. know what I mean? We never got the deal done. And, uh, our attorney just advised us. He was like, you know, I think you guys should explore some other options because I, I you might be at a dead end there. And so we, uh, had like five other labels. So we flew up to New York. And then instead of meeting with the other five labels, we just signed with the first one, which was Sylvia Roan at Electra. And I think that we just, we felt we just wanted somebody to like, like us for what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and she just seemed very interested. And the vice president was in there. He was a big fan of what we were doing. Um, and our, our showcase in there was great. We were just kind of cutting jokes, talking about Molly Crew and Metallica and all these electro bands and stuff. Yeah. And then I think she liked that. And and then we played some songs for her acoustically. And she like was like, this is great. And she was like, well, let's get this deal. Like, don't go to any other labels. Let's, let's do this and whatever you guys want. And that's how it went down. And then, you know, three, four months later, the vice president gets fired. <sighs> like everybody like got cut. A&R guy got fired. We just made our record. We were like, oh my God, dude, what now? And then Rick Ocasek comes in and he's like uh, the VP, whatever at the label. And he, he listened to our record and he said, it sounded like modern Def Leppard. He said, <laughs> that's what he said. He's, he's like, he's, I'm not putting this shit out. So <laughs> oh, man, we, we got dropped. And then, you know, he went with uh, Jet, which good choice. Yeah, I think that Jet record is pretty badass. It's kind of hard to compete with, but yeah. So I think they were just kind of going through those changes of, you know, let's. So yeah, I mean, who who knows what would have happened if you know everything happens for a reason? But I, you know that that stories. There's a lot of those LA stories though, like you know with the Fred and Danny Wimmer because I lived with Danny Wimmer. So when 9/11 happened, Danny Wimmer woke me woke me up. He came in the the uh, the room that I was staying in in his apartment. And he said, wake up, fucker, we're being attacked. That's what he said. Wow. So, crazy stuff. And the rest is history. I'm so glad that you actually stayed friends with Limp Bizkit. And have you, either with that band or with uh, Saliva, have you ever done tours with them? No, actually, uh, never have. I mean, they're, Limp Bizkit's like on a whole like other level, man. And I think Fred's always constantly trying to like reinvent the wheel for, you know, I mean, they stay true to what they're doing, but just, just keeping the relevant thing going and always 
touring with other, you know, bands that are just putting out new stuff or new up and coming artists. He's always been a fan of, of, um, new artists and, and helping new artists, uh, get discovered. And I think that's awesome because there's not a lot of people that are like that. And I think he's been that way from day one. And I think it goes back to, um, how he got discovered was by giving corn a demo tape and doing a tattoo for them and corn taking them under his wing. And I think that he's giving back to, you know, other, other artists and bands. Cause like the bands that opened for them last night, never heard of any one of them. Yeah. You know I what I mean? That. Yeah. No, it's yeah. great because you pay it forward. I mean, he knows where he came from and he never lost sight of that. And I love that because sometimes yeah. you get to another level and, not everybody, but some people will forget where they came from and they're better than everybody else. I'm so glad that Fred's not like that. And uh, that there he's helping these bands up and coming bands get some uh, exposure. Yeah. There's a lot of bands that he helped get deals that people don't even realize, you know, yeah. obviously, you know, the ones like stained and cold and, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, you know, puddle of mud and, there's like, you know, some other bands, but there's like, there's bands where I know that he almost like bands were on the version. I won't mention their names, but I mean, I know these, these are bands that are really, really big today that were on the verge of being dropped before their first record come out. And he'd made a phone call to like their president of their label and said, if you don't do something with this band, I'm going to take them and fucking do something with them. And then next thing you know, the person would, be like okay and they would they would actually listen and then then those bands i mean one of those bands is one of the biggest bands in rock right now you know and i know for a fact that story's true wow. so it's okay. just it's funny how how it how it works man yep. you didn't have to pay anybody <laughs> you know I'm, I'm so glad I, I love hearing stories like that and i'm so glad that he's still a humble dude after all these years and they still sound great because i know you saw them in concert last night yeah. All right. So we were talking about this before. You said some people say, oh, I saw you with Kiss and Aerosmith. And I know that was a tour that you were not on. So for you right. playing with Saliva, what was your favorite tour? Uh, Do you have one? I don't know about a favorite tour. Okay. I mean, there are those that I like or, or you know, man, there's, there's shows that I can remember. We did Las Vegas, um, Fremont Street experience in 2019, which was pretty incredible just because the way it looked like you're down, you know, in, in that strip and like, you know, just all the lights and everything. And there's like 20,000 people. It's crazy how wide and deep it goes back, um, which we're doing that again coming up uh, with Theory of a Dead Man and uh so that's going to be cool. But there's shows like that that I remember. Um, I remember when we did the amphitheater and like uh, uh, Fresno was that was just electric, man. Sometimes just um, certain venues, man. Um, you know, we, we did like Rock USA with Avenged Sevenfold um, one year, and that was like 25, 30,000 people. Like, wow. You know, you, uh, you know, there's those kind of shows for sure that I, I don't know there if there's one particular moment. 
I really enjoyed going and doing like uh, Dubai. Like we played for the U U.S. Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. That was very memorable and cool. And you know, I was hanging out with. Uh, this is back when I still uh, was drinking, and I would, I would go and um, hang out with them till like three or four in the morning, playing acoustic. Like I would just do like covers in like the bar area. Everyone's like getting tanked, and they were only allowed to have three. Um, there I'm back. They were only allowed to have three drinks. That was their limit. But dude, it was so funny because there were some of them where it was like, Oh, this person didn't drink or whatever. So they were taking their drinks and like, uh. you know, <laughs> they didn't give me a limit at all, but I was, you know, we just had a great time, man. We would, we would stay up. It's, I would sing like Oasis and Britney Spears songs and just anything. Anyone would come out. I was like a jukebox. I love like, it. Name a song, man. I'm playing Backstreet Boys and just <laughs> and all these like you know, uh, you know, Air Force like dudes been singing every word, man. They knew all that shit. It's hilarious. So, you still play solo acoustic shows sometimes? Sometimes, man. I just yeah. haven't had a whole time to do them. Yeah, did uh, a few in in uh, the Dallas area recently for a promoter friend. He was doing uh starting something that he does like uh like pop-up shows where he doesn't tell uh the venue who's playing mm -hmm. and then they they buy all the tickets and then they they show up and then they're uh uh completely pissed off when they realize it's me <laughs> you know, someone way cooler <laughs> you know, i'd be happy if it was you i'd right. love to so, be alive he's explaining this to me on the phone and I'm telling him, I'm like, well, they're gonna be very disappointed when they realize it's me. <laughs> but uh, you know, no, it was good, great, very res respect, uh, respectable. And the, a lot of the people that are there are more like into the country stuff, but yeah, you know, into the, like the songwriting stuff and, and hearing stories. And I think it was it was good, actually went over a lot better than I expected. So yeah, yeah. I'm happy to hear that. Uh, did you ever have a club in Connecticut called Toad's Place? It's a yeah. Okay, yes. yeah. it's a very it's been around forever. But the reason uh, I bring that up uh, New Haven. New Haven, right. The reason I bring that up was something similar happened. It, it was more of a surprise, but they weren't saying we're not gonna tell you which band is, they just didn't say anything. And the Rolling Stones played there. And people who were just happened to be there seeing some local band they thought saw the Rolling Stones. And so th they were in for quite a shock when that happened. I think it's great when bands do that. I know Aerosmith would do stuff like that. Band, you know, would just show up. Prince used to do that a lot too. I would love. I never had a yeah. chance to see Prince before he died. I wish I did. That would have been a great show. Have you ever had a yeah. chance to see him? No, I actually tried to go. I was going to go see him years ago when they built our new arena here in Jacksonville. He was the Amber Alert. Oh boy. In that style, Duval County. Wow. That's not good. No. So, yeah, I was going to see uh, Prince in the new arena here, but it they oversold it out. They, uh. they put where it was like in. And that's so he's the he maxed cap the room. The fire marshal was like, there will never be this many people in here again. Mm -hmm. It was like 
19,000 or whatever. The place only holds like 17 or something like that. I don't know how they did it or made it happen, but um, yeah, what a show that would have been. Yeah. yeah. Something similar happened when uh, there was this, another club called the Sting. It no longer exists, but it was a small club and they way overbooked for Pantera. I was in there. I could not move at all. It was just so uncomfortable, but it was way overpacked and it just was not enjoyable for me. But that, yeah, I hate, I hate when clubs do that. When was that? This, oh man, it was, I want to say it was in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s. Was when, uh, what year did Walk come out? That album? Oh, dude, that's, that's like 92. Okay, so it was 90s. Yeah. I was going to say, because Pantera, the club days would have been, yeah, back then, like yeah. early on. Yeah. It was so, it definitely was during that one. It was, I didn't realize it was that early in the 90s, but it was 92. And now that you mentioned it, I do remember I was, I was, yeah, it was like like twenty something years old, so that that sounds right. But yeah, it, it, that would have been that would have been something to see. I I got to see Pantera. I did see them um, reinventing the Steel tour, and then saw them with White Zombie in like ninety six or ninety seven, or, or whatever it was. Yeah, I was in, yeah, that they were incredible, man. Like just the, I've never heard a band sound like that loud and that tight. Oh yeah, just, well that's that's exactly what it was like where I was, and it was wall to wall people. It's just and they they were phenomenal. I will not I will not deny that. That's when they were going for it, man. Back yeah. in the early, they were they were on a mission, you know. So yeah, so that's one you, band, that's like one band that I think I'll always miss for sure more than more than any other band, just because man, like that that was that was my jam. Like, you know, growing up that like uh, Alice in Chains and stuff and a lot of a lot of musicians that we've lost that um, that we'll never, never see again. But, you know, you just you got the music, you know, live, live through the music and uh, watch the old videos, man. And it's. Oh, yeah. No, that's one thing. Thank God the music will never die. So they will always have right. that. And I hear so many great stories from musicians about Dimebag saying what a great guy he was, how generous yep. he was, how hilarious he was. I have never heard one negative story about that guy. And and Vinny. And, you know, they, they were definitely uh, no egos, all about people having a good time. They would always invite bands and stuff to, to their houses I think they just wanted to get everyone so annihilated, like so drunk, <laughs> you know, they, they're like, they were proving like that nobody could out drink them or something, you know? And, and they liked to like, they, they were into hazing. Dime was very into hazing. Like, you know, new band would come to his house. He'd get them completely hammered. They wouldn't even know it. You know, they were like crawling, puking and, <laughs> you know, uh, but that's, they, those were, as real as it gets real, real guys. And unfortunate the way that, uh, you know, dime, uh, you know, died was just, that's, that's the most sick thing, thing that I think ever, you know, I can't um, imagine that. I mean, as a, as a being in the audience, I would probably think it was part of the show first. Cause I would never expect that to happen. Imagine his own brothers up on stage with him seeing this happen. Yeah. That's just, He's never the same. I mean, you you yeah. you just can't. Like, uh, how do you sleep at night? You know, you just 
there's no way, man. That's a real life horror movie, you know, right in front of you for anyone that was there, you know? Um, yeah. And I remember hearing about it like in what is 2004, December. Yeah. And, and I remember I was with my girlfriend at the time and, you know, I, I didn't even think text messaging was around then. I don't remember. I don't think so. Or phone call. Yeah. So I don't even think, yeah, it it was a text. It was probably something like PRP or a website (laughs) and that how you hear about it. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I just remember thinking this, there's no way this is not real. Like that's not, how does that happen? Like who does that? You know, some, some sick dude who, you know, thought he was or something. Yeah, no, it was such so such a shame. And I had I was in just as much shock when I heard about it too. And I can't remember how I heard, but the same thing. Like, what really? So for you though, we'll get back to your music. Do you prefer festivals or the small clubs, and why? Well, the festivals always make you feel like you're yeah. doing important. You know, <laughs> you're like I like festivals because I I feel like. Um, that's that's the payoff for me that's like like the time to shine kind of deal like let's let's go out and and rock it and really really take it up a notch but the clubs though i treat them the same it's like i always i always go out and you know i i leave the stage with just you know as sweaty as ever and uh you know hair completely soaked and um same feeling so i'm grateful that i'm able to play on any stage. Yeah. Yeah. No, sometimes I think the clubs have that more intimate feeling and you get to be right up face to face with your fans. But yeah, I can imagine 30,000 people just rocking and singing your songs. I can imagine that feeling. The funniest thing I ever saw was uh, I saw Bruce Dickinson on the tattoo millionaire tour at Toad's place. And you could tell he is so used to the arenas. He felt so uncomfortable. People were moshing stage diving, which it was it's funny watching him do that to Iron Maiden's type of music or his soul stuff. But yeah, he felt so uncomfortable and so out of place. And I remember I, I actually met him outside by a tour bus. I said, oh, Bruce, you had a great night. He goes, would you like to trade places with me, mate? Like he just did not want to be there. He was more used to like being at the Harp for in Connecticut, the Civic Center or yeah. big arena. I saw, yeah. I saw D. Snyder back in like 96 mm-hmm. at a small club in Jacksonville. And you can tell, man, like, he hated it. Yeah. He was like, he was kicking the, 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 the light. He, he pulled like a lighting uh, can off the thing yeah. because it was just one white light. And it was, <laughs> he was so pissed. But I mean, think about it though. Like, you know, those, those guys were in bands that were playing arenas and kind of on top of the world and all over MTV at one time. And then you like playing like small clubs. It's, it's a reality check for sure. Yeah. And, uh, but some guys, they just, they do it the same. They, they go out and they treat it like they're in, they're in an arena, you know, and, and just, but there's other guys too. It's, it's hard to come down from that, I guess. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, but yeah. Well, you know, who did it well, which I was surprised because he put on <laughs> such elaborate stage shows was Ryan James Dio. I've seen him plenty of times in the last in line tour, Holy Diver, and he had the dragons. Then 
towards the later years, he'd be playing small clubs. There's one club in Hartford called the Webster, which is an old movie theater. But you could tell he just, I mean, unless he was faking, which I don't think he was from what I know people that met him. So he's very, he was very genuine. He was having a great time. He was interacting with the audience and he just put on a great show regardless of what he could do with his stage set. And, you know, he was used to playing all the big places with Sabbath, Rainbow. Yeah. And the yeah. Old so just, but he seemed like he was always appreciative. He was still there. I think it's accepting where you're at and what, what you're, you know, what it is. Yeah. It's like, you can, you can be pissed off about it, but it's not going to change. Mm-hmm. It's not going to change the stage you're on. It's just like, you know, um, you got to just make, make do with what you have and, and just be grateful that you are able to do it. Yeah. You know? And the, you still have the fans coming to show up and they want right. to see so I'd be, I'd be grateful for yeah. that. So yeah, 10 or 10,000, man. That's, that's that, that's what it means. Exactly. I, I love that mentality. Now, for you, your music has been featured in movies such as The Fast and Furious, Talladega Nights, WWE. Do you have anything that you're going to be doing with your music in the, in the future or currently? Man, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll, we'll get some, you know, we always, you always want to try to get in some placements and and uh, and stuff like that, but I don't know anything in particular. I mean, we're just now getting the record done and ready for like release, so we're we haven't really gotten that far yet. But yeah, it'd be cool. yeah, it's always great. Well, Bobby, you know what was great having you on my show. I really do appreciate you coming here. I know we've been going back and forth trying to get the best time, best day. I really do appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be on the show. But before you go, though, I want to do some plugs for you. So what's next and where can people find you? Um, well, we're going to be touring. We're going out uh, June. Uh, otherwise, Ninth Planet. Um, and we're going to, we got a bunch of stuff in July and August and the rest of the year. Uh, hopefully the record will come out late summer. And uh, yeah, we just can't wait. You know, the fans are why we do this. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I want to say that all the fans that have been supporting rock and roll in general has, has been huge because like all these festivals that are going on, they thrive because of the people that have been, you know, the supporting. It's almost like, you know, they look forward to that every year. It's cool when you, when you read about people, they go to a festival and then they're already looking forward to the one next year. This is just a part of their life now. And, and without them, these festivals don't exist. These bands don't exist. And uh, so, yeah, I think it all from day one, it always starts with the fans, man. So, yeah, keep up the great work. And once again, thank you very much for being on the show. I look forward to uh, seeing you. Are you going to be coming to the uh, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York area? Yeah, I think so. Um, You know, let's. uh, And if not, I'll call my agent and tell him we need to. So, yeah, yeah, you have. I'm sure there's many more, but I will definitely be there in the front row. Rocking away to saliva. So awesome, man. Look forward to All it. Right. Have a great See night. You. That right, wraps thanks. up the latest episode of The Claws Corner. A huge thanks goes out to vocalist, songwriter, and producer Bobby Emeru for taking time out of his busy schedule to be on the show. I would also like to thank the extremely talented John Bristol of Elmwood Productions for always doing a superb job editing this show week after week and making it available for you, the audience. And last but definitely not least, 
I need to thank you, the viewer, for tuning in. Enjoy your day, everyone. No, if you say so. I've always wanted to be in a movie. Been around for all 